I find it really important to tell the story to our children. And so Mandy told it already, and I feel like it's important for us to hear again. So hear these words from the Gospel of Mark 11, verses 1 through 10. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Just say this, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And so they went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. And as they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat upon it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road and other uh, spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Here ends the reading. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me for a moment. Holy One, we inch forward in complete surrender to you today, hoping to hear a word for our lives. Give us open minds and hearts to hear what you would have us here for our lives. Give us the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed, courage to change the things which can be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. Amen. On October 13th, 2014, I sat in a packed United Methodist Church in Ferguson, Missouri. I was receiving civil disobedience training, wondering how in the world I got there. You see, I'm not an activist. Matter of fact, I grow weary of politics, and I really hate divisive conflict. Turns out I play it safe in a lot of ways. But as I sat in that church, I remembered my own upbringing. I was raised in a St. Louis suburb five miles from Ferguson, Missouri. And I recalled how my own parents chose to stay in a changing neighborhood during a period of white flight in the 1980s. I recalled living as a white girl in my predominantly black high school. As a teenager, I listened to a lot of Public Enemy and Dr. Dre. I read the autobiography of Malcolm X twice before I graduated from high school. 
I had an interracial peer group. And I remembered those times in which I witnessed racism firsthand. Like the time when a girlfriend of mine and I were in the line at the ATM and this white lady in front of us looked my friend up and down and said, back up girl. Or the time when my high school boyfriend was pulled over by the police because he fit the description. Now, my boyfriend was in the National Honor Society, and I knew that wasn't the description they were talking about. Throughout my teenage years, I sifted through disgust about my own whiteness, while at the same time benefiting from it. Fast forward to my adult life in Colorado, the death of Michael Brown shook me to my core. I watched the news and cried about what was happening in my hometown. But I didn't know what to do about it, and I didn't see any white people protesting on CNN. All I saw were black bodies throwing things. This should have been my first sign of a contrived narrative. Just four weeks after Michael Brown was killed, my friend Waltrina called me up on the phone to invite me to join her in Ferguson because, quote, our youth needed us. I politely said, oh, honey, oh, honey, that's so nice. Thanks for the invitation, but I just can't do it this time. I came up with a lot of excuses as to why I couldn't go, the real reason being that I was just too scared. But you see, that night, I couldn't sleep, which is usually a sign that something is up. So the next morning, I woke up and I said to Josh, I, I think I have to go to Ferguson. <laughs> and he just looked at me and he said, okay, be safe. Nothing about it felt safe, though. I had seen what happened to protesters just the week before. Lines of police in their tanks and full riot gear, shooting rubber bullets at tax-paying members of the community. And there were instigators from outside of Ferguson who were coming in to loot and riot. I was afraid for my, public, my personal and physical safety. And the death of Michael Brown was just too controversial at the time. You know, some of us, for some of us, a local march is safer than talking to our family about politics over Easter brunch. <laughs> All right? And I admit that I like when people like me. And I was afraid of losing that. Plus, let's get real, it's not cute to go to jail. I didn't want to go. Attending a weekend of protesting was asking me to go to places that I did not want to go. Since 2014, I can't help but to hear protest in our Palm Sunday story. This idea is supported by the work of Marcus Borg and Dominic Crossan in their book, The Last Week. They make the case that this peasant parade did not happen in isolation. It was a protest to the royal procession that was happening on the other side of town. On the other side of Jerusalem, Pontius Pilate held the reins of a mighty war horse to intimidate the Jewish people during their holy time of Passover. And so as an act of risky political theater, Jesus and his misfit followers untied a borrowed donkey to reimagine their weakness as their power. A donkey, cloaks, and some palms 
were instruments to publicly demonstrate their political oppression. It's as if they were marching for their lives. Their celebration mocked those who worshipped at the foot of political power. Dominic Crossan writes, The two processions embody the central conflict of the week that led to Jesus' crucifixion. The conflict of military might and sweet hosannas were on the streets of Ferguson, too. When I first arrived in Ferguson for a late-night protest, I joined young people whose goal was to end police brutality. We marched five miles through the dark streets of Ferguson, chanting, Black Lives Matter. I noticed the sternness of police officers that lined the corners of the route, and I felt my anxiety rise. A small glimpse into what this community experienced every day. So I pushed past my feelings of discomfort because, let's be honest, it was just uncomfortable. So uh, that I could walk and talk and listen to the stories of young people until midnight that night. One young man called the private incarceration of poor black people the modern-day debtor's prison. They couldn't afford to pay traffic violations, which resulted in warrants for their arrests. One young lady shared that one of the Ferguson police officers called her boss to tell her boss about her activism. And that phone call got her fired. And then another young man shared that he had lost two jobs due to police harassment, so activism was now his full-time job. It's as if they were marching for their lives. Throughout the weekend, these young people called out Christians for our complicity and our silence. It felt risky to be called out to a stunning truth that left me feeling utterly powerless. But here's what I thought about later. They trusted us. They trusted that religious communities would respond to their pain, and we didn't. They trusted that police officers who worked under high standards of peacekeeping would protect them, and they didn't. It is heartbreaking to hear that we grown-ups fail our children over and over again. And so, at 7.30 a.m. on Moral Monday, only two blocks away from the Ferguson Police Department, over 600 religious leaders gathered in that church for civil disobedience training. We filled out jail support forms. And then we wrote the number, the phone number of the jail support hotline on our arms with Sharpies. And then we clergy, we spent time in communal confession and this is what Dr. King did with his activists before an action. He said that we cannot ask for repentance from others without shedding our own wrongs first. So clergy tearfully confessed our acceptance of America's low standards that helped set the conditions for the deaths of our black and brown children. 
And then with singing, we took to the streets of Ferguson, linked arm in arm as the young people had instructed us the night before. When we arrived at the Ferguson police station, we participated in risky political theater. One person sanctimoniously drew the outline of a dead body on the sidewalk, and around it we lit candles, and we chanted, and we prayed and sang freedom songs. And then a group of self-selected clergymen and women volunteered to be that front line. They stood face to face with officers in full riot gear. And then the clergy spoke these powerful words. You are a part of the system that has killed Michael Brown. I offer to hear your confession and grant you absolution. And then I witnessed a miracle. Religious leaders sharing personal stories of racism with the officers. Dialogue was exchanged. Humanity shared. Many of the clergy holding the hands of the officers in front of them. I suppose that, yes, our youth did need us to do this. But I also wonder if, as we heard today, the Lord needed it so that the Lord could do the Lord's work. Our undoing of our grown-up safety was what was needed. What I have since recognized is that when you hang out with Jesus, the empty one, you begin to wonder what it means to be safe. The story of Holy Week peels back the layers of all of our false securities to reveal that surrender is the new strength. Brené Brown says it best. She writes, Embracing our vulnerabilities is risky but not nearly as dangerous as giving up on love and belonging and joy, the experiences that make us the most vulnerable. And so my whiteness, my privilege, my charm, my education, my clergy status, my image, you know, the purple lipstick and the ridiculously high heels, they are not real safety. Sometimes safety can actually impede intimacy. And so when it comes down to it, there is nothing safer than undoing our safety. No insurance plan or amount of money or political power or weaponry will guarantee us the safety that we crave. Maybe what the Lord needs is for us to leave all of our safeguards at the foot of the cross instead of at the foot of political power. Because when we are stripped down, utterly powerless, reduced to what is essential, that is when God can do God's real work, the work of resurrection. <laughs>